All right, questions are on the screen. Like I said, please take uh, note of those questions. So we're starting chapter 10 this morning, um, and we're going to be going through verse 16. So we're going to do verses 1 through 16 there, and you'll see uh, how they all um, flow together. But remember, Luke chapter 9 was the turning point. And then we really saw it last week in verse 51 and 53, where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. So no longer the Galilean ministry around the lake. He made it to the top to Bethsaida and Capernaum area, and now he is setting his way to the south toward Jerusalem. That's the turning point. So Jesus is, is, is directly making his intent known that he is going to Jerusalem, and what we have seen from chapter 9, we know it's for the cross. Right? I can't remember the specific verses, maybe verse 22 and somewhere a little bit later. He tells us why he has come, and that's to go to Jerusalem to be taken up at the cross. So we must remember that what we have in our hearts and in our minds and what we need to remember as the body of Christ, as the church and the disciples and followers of Jesus, that the center is the gospel. The center is the cross. The message that we preach to each other, the message that we preach to unbelievers, the center of that is the cross and the resurrection of Christ because that is the decisive work, the decisive work of Christ that has been brought about through him so that we could be drawn near to him by his grace and by his mercy. So that was Jesus' mission, to go to, the, go to the cross, and he was fulfilling that mission. He knew what he was here for, and he was doing it. Now, when he set his face toward Jerusalem, everybody knows that that's where they were going. They were going to Jerusalem, and when they were wanting to go through Samaria, because we know the, the closest way to get to Jerusalem from where Jesus was, was to travel through the region of Samaria, they, he sent some guys ahead of him saying, hey, we got a big group here, or you, can you handle us? And since Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, they wanted nothing to do with him. And so, without going through all the racial and nationalistic and tribal mindset between the Jews and Samaritans, that was last week. If you didn't catch that, you can go back to the website and listen to that there. Uh, needless to say, it was a, a heated and hateful uh, uh, relationship, very dysfunctional relationship between brothers. Um, the disciples, when they heard that they were being rejected and not allowed to go through Samaria, uh, James and John wanted to bring about fire and brimstone and judgment upon them, just like we heard Elijah did. But Jesus rebukes them in mercy. And what we saw last week, that the first step of a disciple in following Jesus is to, to cultivate a heart of, of, of mercy, and not vindictiveness and judgment, but a heart of mercy uh, toward others and even those who reject. And Jesus quietly rebukes them and he moves on. And we see the mercy of God even in God's and Jesus' judgment of moving on. Um, we know judgment will come from our message, but we trust in the Lord. More about that a little bit later in our passage today. Um, the second event that we saw yesterday or last week was when Jesus encountered these three would-be followers. And if you remember, each of these guys gave some excuse or some reason was in their heart of why they couldn't fully follow Jesus and give that full commitment to, to Jesus that Jesus was asking. They had, they had stipulations in their minds. And so these three examples really boil down to us and help us see that there's a cost of a commitment when we follow Jesus. 
And what Jesus is saying is that if you are going to follow me, then your commitment must be there's nothing else that is more important than me. Not comfort, not your family, or anything else. Everything has to be underneath me. So it's not about what we have or what we are going to give up to follow Jesus. It's really all about how much we have, or it's not about how much we have to give, given, uh, give to him, but really it's about how important it is Jesus, or how important Jesus is to us. Got a little tongue-tied there for a moment. And that's why Jesus gives such hard responses to these guys. You can go back and read them, what he says. Really hard things. Because this is the cost of commitment to following Jesus, is he more important to us than anything else? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this kind of commitment? These questions we must ask. And I think that these passages flow really well together with what we are going to have today. Because that cost of commitment now goes into action of being sent out. So a disciple is not just one who has a heart of mercy and cultivating a heart of mercy and a heart of Commitment, but a disciple is also one who has been sent out. A disciple is one who has always been sent out to reach others and to bring them into the kingdom of God. And so as we are challenged by our, our commitment and we're challenged by our, our hearts of mercy, we also must be challenged by being sent. Our mission is no different from Jesus' mission. Let's look back now to chapter 10. Let's start reading from verses verse 1 through 16 together. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to him, them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to him, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloths and ashes but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. 
And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Amen. That is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts this morning to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory, to his glory, and for our joy. Now, this isn't the first time, if you remember, that Jesus has sent out his, some of his disciples. If you look back at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, weeks ago now for us, in the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12. You see that in verses 1 through 6. He sends out the 12 disciples, and he almost gives them the exact instructions that he gives them uh, gives to the 72 before he sends them out. A little more detail that we get here in, uh, in chapter 10. But he sends out 72 this time. So he has a pretty good following. How many of your, of your Bibles, just by curiosity, actually say 70? How many of you always said 70? Just curious. None? Okay, some Bibles say 70, some say 72. Different manuscripts have said different things, but regardless... It's a number around 70 or 72 or maybe a compromise in between, the 71. But they have to go two by two, so it can't be 71. Some dude would get left out. So it has to be one of the two. So he sends out these 72. Now, we have to understand that this is the second time now Jesus sends out his disciples. There is a pattern here, isn't there? You see, there's a pattern. Luke 22, Jesus is going to address his disciples again in sending them out. And then we know later on that Jesus is going to send them out big time, right, with the Great Commission. Jesus sending out his disciples. This is what we do. This is what disciples do. They get sent out. They are called. They are commissioned. They are empowered. And we are sent out into the world to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim the gospel. We know in the second part of Luke, meaning the book of Acts, that Jesus sends out his disciples there before he ascends into heaven in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you receive, whole, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Some, some of y'all might have memorized it, to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. So with the Holy Spirit then, who will come ten days later to empower his disciples, they were going to be sent out into the world again to be his Witnesses as that same call, that same commission, that same empowerment that has come to us to be sent. Now we've been talking a lot about the disciples. We've been talking a lot about the disciples, the uh, discipleship and their commitment these last couple of weeks. And what's inescapable is that disciples follow Jesus. That sounds very obvious, doesn't it? What did they follow Jesus in doing? By being obedient. And they're sent as Jesus was sent by the Father. So us set going out, being sent, is looking more like Jesus and being more like him. Matthew 28, 19-20. We have to read the Great Commission here. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to what? Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Disciples are disciple makers. You can quote our book that we've been reading on Wednesday nights. It says, Christians make disciples. If we're not making disciples, 
may not be a Christian. This is what we do. This is, this is what we are. We're disciple makers. Our evangelism, our disciple making in our proclamation of the gospel in the kingdom of God is making disciples. We make disciples and we then baptize them under the authority of the church into the membership of the church to be one of us and then to become a disciple themselves who then makes disciples. You see the progression. We are only here because someone else went and made disciples. Now, what does that have to do with our scripture and our passage today? Everything. Because here we see 72 sent out. They're, they're, they're sent out. And so are we now, 2,000 years later, each and every disciple of Christ who is a part of the, the Big C Church. Who's part of the Big C Church. Years later, we're, we're still called to, to go. And we are sent Every disciple of Christ is called and sent by Jesus himself. And we see the same idea right here in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. What does it say? He sent them out. The same word that was used earlier when he sent the disciples out. The, 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 the verb form now of the same word that was used when he called his 12 disciples and called them to be his apostles. Sent. Apostoletto, sent. We are sent out as apostles, little a, of Christ. Sent out to proclaim the gospel. Now, 99% of us have heard many sermons about sharing the gospel and doing evangelism. And I know the struggle the battle that goes on in my own heart when it comes to talking about Christ to someone who does not know Christ. I know the difficulty it is. I know the tension there. I know the, the fear and the, the thoughts of what am I going to, what do I do if I am rejected? And so I say this this morning and preach this sermon this morning because I have hope that as we see our passage this morning, we will encounter it with humility with hearts to receive the word of God this morning, to have a new sense of delight and desire to share the gospel, a, a new sense of, of an urgency to share the gospel, and a desire to be obedient. I think even above else, to just be obedient. To be obedient to the command of our Savior to go. So I have five short points that I want to share I've condensed them because I didn't lose five. And then at the end, I'm going to come back with four questions. If you take note with our response questions, you already kind of know the points of my sermon. i got five points I want to share, and then i got four questions I want to bring up at the, at the end. And, and these go right from the passage, right from the text. You'll see how it, it's going to go flow right through. Super simple, easy for us to follow. The first verse, or, well, verse two. Verse two gives us our, our first point. So clearly, though, from, from verse 1, though, Jesus is sending out his disciples. He sends them up two by two. You know what, I, what, did you, what do you think of when you think of two by two? I, I know I thought about the animals. I'm like, yeah, we're a bunch of animals. We're just sent out two by two, right? 
Um, I, so that's what I thought. I know there's probably some other you know, symbolism there, but that's what I thought. They partnered up. They went out, and Jesus sent them. He prepares them. He gives them instruction and, and tells them to go. But look at verse 2 when he starts speaking, right? So now we get, we get Jesus' words, his literal instruction, straight to the disciples and the followers that he, he sends out. He's very specific about his instructions. Look at verse 2. It says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So here's Jesus using another um, agricultural picture to illustrate what's going on in bringing others into the kingdom of God. Meaning, out in the world, out in your midst, brothers and sisters, there is a, there is a harvest, a metaf- metaphor, right? a harvest of people that are out there to be, to be harvested, to be reaped and, and brought into the kingdom of God. And this harvest is not meager, this harvest is not small, but this harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful. It's good. And it's ready. And there are many who will be saved and brought into the kingdom. But there's a problem. The problem is, is that the laborers are few. Workers, real workers to go out into the field. We're going to work hard all day and bring in the harvest. They are, they are few. Same problem that exists back then, same problem that exists even now. Let me give you an example. There are 4,000 82 identified different people groups in the world. Here's a people group. A people group is a group of people with the, with the same language, the same kind of language and the same um, um, common self-identity, right? They have the same language, the same in common I- identity. So there's two different things that work here that make a people group, and there's over 4,082 that have been identified in, in our in our world, right? And out of that number of 4,082, there's 1,251 of those groups, those different groups, who are completely unreached. They are completely unreached. And here's what I mean by unreached. Unreached refers to people groups where there is no indigenous community of evangelical Christians who are able to engage with them about the gospel, meaning there's no one there. It'd be like everyone in Statesboro, there's no one that's a Christian. Nobody's a Christian. They, they have no idea and they have no way to get the scriptures to them. It's less than 2% of indigenous people that are Christians and who are able to engage through church planting. That's 1,251 unreached people groups. That's staggering. And that's not even talking about who made the curve up to 3% or 4% or 5% or the northeast of America or Europe that are moving post-Christian. The same problem then, the laborers are few or even now. But what Jesus tells these disciples, that the first great work of making disciples, brothers and sisters, is not getting out on the road. The first great work of disciple-making is praying. 
And praying for what? Praying for more laborers. Praying for more help. We pray and we ask the Lord of the harvest for more laborers. Are you seeing your place in praying for more laborers to be sent out into the harvest? Is, is that your standard prayer when you pray each and every day? Is this something that is so important to you that you would remember to pray for that God would send and raise up laborers and send them out into this world? People to reach those unreached people groups? Do you pray for missions around the world? And then just, just a thought, just ideas, go to the website of Open Doors USA. They give you wonderful resources on how to pray for the nations and how to pray for laborers. The IMB, International Mission Board, you go to the website. They, I think they have a whole tab on nothing but how to pray. How to pray for these unreached people groups. How to pray for missionaries. How to pray how the Lord would use you in that amazing work. And isn't it amazing, just think with me on this, isn't it amazing that such a large, huge, daunting task, a huge task for us to take the gospel to the nations and reach the hard work and the barriers that need to be brought down in reaching those unreached people groups, that isn't it amazing that God has brought each one of us into it? I mean, who am I? I don't know any other languages, but I can pray. I can pray and I can plead with the Lord of the harvest to, to send out more laborers. We have a part. You have a part in this huge mission. To pray. The second thing that I put down here, what's so amazing uh, about God inviting us and bringing us into this, is that He is sovereign. And that He is, has ordained as the, har- the, the Lord of the harvest. He has ordained the harvest. We get to be a part of that. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But also, in a, in a real sense, as we begin to pray for laborers, and we pray for laborers to be raised up around the nations, do, do you realize that we ourselves will then sometimes be the answer to our own prayer? That we will be the, the answer to our own prayer of being sent out Maybe to the nations, maybe only across the street, maybe even just across the hall. We could pray for one another. But God sends the laborers in our city. God would send you to be a proper laborer. We could pray for one another. We have the, the opportunity to share the gospel in our own city. We get worked up about a lot of things. We get worked up about sports. We get worked up about media and movies and family and politics. Boy, do people get worked up about politics and the news. But are we passionate about what Jesus says that we should be passionate about? There is a harvest around us, brothers and sisters. There is a harvest. The Lord of the harvest has, has brought people, and there's people around us that are part of this harvest. And yes, we pray We pray for laborers and we pray for one another in our labor for the gospel. That's our first point. We are sent praying. In our next two verses, we'll see the second point, and that is that we are sent humble. We are sent humble. We've seen a lot of humility. 
being taught to us, to the disciples and to us. Right here in verse chapter, or verse 3, Jesus says explicitly, go, right? That is a, um, that is a present active verb, indicative verb. It's a command. It means go now, right? Sometimes I raise my voice in my house when I want something done like now, or it's going to be too late. You know what I mean? Something, kids going to drop water on the carpet or spill oranges. I'm like, no! Or get out of the kitchen, right? Something's exploding or something like that. That's what this is. This is a, a present active of go. Go. Just like in the command of the Great Commission. But how do we go? We go humble. Our posture is of humility. And when we read verses like verse 3, our attitudes become adjusted to that humility when we realize that we are only lambs sent among wolves. That doesn't sound like a very good proposition, does it? It doesn't sound like a very good idea to take your lambs and just open the gate for wolves to devour them. You see, Jesus isn't sending us to a safe house or to a monastery where other lambs gather, but Jesus is sending us right into the danger, the danger of the mouths of wolves. And this is the reality of living in an evil world, that there are wolves everywhere. And there, some of those wolves will devour some of those lambs. But as lambs, we are humble. We're humble followers of our, of our shepherd. And we only have what the Lord has given us. We go in faith. You see there, he tells, she tells them a list of things of not to take. Again, right? The, the knapsack, the wallet... Um, does he say purse? I can't remember. Knapsack, wallet, purse, uh, sandals, go shoeless. Think why? That's not necessarily a prescription for us. This was a prescription for them. But what does it teach us? It tells us we go in faith. We go in faith because God will provide. Maybe one of the biggest reasons why we're, we're fearful in our sharing the gospel is because we haven't gone in faith. We think that the, this is about, it's about us and how, what we can say and how, how articulate we can say these things. We can trust the Lord that he will give us opportunities and the boldness and the power. The Holy Spirit to speak through us. The power to live faithfully and to speak faithfully and share the gospel in this world, in this city. But there's another side to this is we go in faith, but we also go urgently. Another reason why they don't take all those things with them is because they've got to travel light and they've got to travel fast. Because guess who's coming? Jesus. He even tells them, don't talk to anyone on the road. That was a custom. Right? You see someone on the road, you have a conversation, you get to know them. And Jesus says, just don't talk to them, you just keep going. Why? There's an urgency. There's, a, there's an urgency that the kingdom of God is, is coming and the imperative, once again, the go. Don't look back, but go. Travel light, travel fast. If, um, if you were a hiker, right, and you, and you wanted to, to hike the Appalachian Trail, it's over 2,400 miles long. It starts in North Georgia at Springer Mountain and it goes all the way up to... Maine, and I can't remember the name, uh, um, Katahdin, Mount Katahdin. Sounds like somewhere in like India. It feels like they have 2,000 miles, but all the way up there. 
and it travels right along uh, the, the, the chain line of the Appalachian Mountains. You would start uh, about a, two months ago, around April, you would start in Georgia if you were going to through hike, and you would make it all the way up to, if you can do it, uh, up to Katahdin by, by October, and you'd hope to get there before October 10th, because once the bad weather comes in, they close the park, and you'll never make that last 20 miles, and you'll be like, no, right? So you, you got to get on it. Um, now, now my, my point is, is that in, in Georgia, between Springer Mountain and just after Blood Mountain, I don't know if you know where Blood Mountain is, it's right off of 129 between Cleveland and Blairsville. There's a park, uh, Vogel State Park. And, and just down the mountain, you'll, you'll cross over 129. There's this cool-looking building there that was built back in, like, the 20s. And, and, and in there, there's a hiking store, like a shop for you to buy hiking gear and stuff like that. And you're like, why would you need, why don't you already have that stuff? Here's a good reason. Because people who start in Springer Mountain, they usually will pack all kinds of stuff. They'll bring, I mean, they'll load their pack down. They got like a 40-pound pack on their back. And that's kind of light, to be honest with you. I mean, military guys, they'll carry like 90 pounds, right? They got much heavier stuff. But these, like 40 pounds, and they're going up the mountain. Once you start making up and down the North Georgia mountains, by the time you get to 129, if you make it that far to that place, that first like stop where you can take a shower and things like that, usually takes about a week to get there. You're like throwing crap in the garbage can because every ounce counts. Man, you want to travel light. You want to travel light and you want to travel fast. There's an urgency to get there and to get rid of that stuff. In fact, what's really cool inside that store, there's probably like 10,000 pair of like big hiking boots like tied to the ceiling. Everybody who comes off throws their boots off. I want a pair of tennis shoes and they sell all kinds of shoes and stuff like light shoes and things. We want to travel light. We want to travel fast. We travel in faith. And we travel urgency of urgency because of the gospel. We proclaim the gospel urgently because the kingdom is coming. Jesus is coming. He's coming. And as Christians, we travel humbly in faith and urgently. We do all of that in humility. My second point, or my third point, I'm sorry, is that we are sent with peace. We are sent with peace. Or we can also say that we, are, we, um, that we seek peace. We, sent, we are sent with peace. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking and what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from this house. Wherever you enter a, a, a town and they receive you, eat what is before you. Great job description right for us. So as disciples who are now being sent out as humble lambs, they are now ambassadors of peace. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, a lamb is pretty peaceful. We're not sent out as wolves. We're sent out as lambs because we, our message, our demeanor, our humility, it shows the peace that the gospel brings. Our message and our methods as followers of Jesus are of peace. That's the kingdom of God, is peace. Too many in this world have seen Christianity as a religion of hostility and even hate. And, and rightly so. If, if you know Christian history, unfortunately, we do not have a very good history in some areas of the world. 
We did not come in the peace of Christ. But we, our message, our demeanor, our spirit is one of peace. The peace that Christ has brought into our hearts. The the shalom of God. As people of peace, we are to seek then out people of peace. And, And there is something amazing in this passage that a person of peace is someone that God is working on. Someone that that could be even receptive to to hear the gospel. And then God uses that person of peace even to proclaim the gospel. If you look throughout Acts, that's one of the things that the apostles did when they went into a town, is they would seek out persons of peace. I believe it was in uh, Philippi where the apostle Paul was even approached by Lydia, a person of peace. And and then God not only miraculously saved her in her household, then God used her in her household, in her career, who she was a rich lady, in her career, then to provide for the work of the gospel in Philippi. God then, this is how God works. Brothers and sisters, there are people of peace in Statesboro. There are are people that are among even the Lord's chosen in our city that the Lord will send us among. We must have the eyes to see and the discernment and the spirit and the commitment and the faith to give them the peace of God. And I love what this passage is getting at. Because when we meet that person of peace, God's, God's peace rests on them. And it rests on us. Can you imagine how Paul felt when he was walking into a whole other city, knew no one, in Philippi? And Lydia, a person of peace, approaches him. What encouragement. Unfortunately, too many times, often Christian evangelism has turned into ministries and programs that look more like moochers who use the gospel as a something to sell, going door to door only to accumulate numbers for their books and their decisions for their own selves. And the sad reality is that here, here in our city, in our area, where the ground unfortunately has been toiled over and over and over and over so many times, that people have heard the same spiel over and over. They have become almost immune and know how to 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 move people along when they hear anything about Christ. But brothers and sisters, we don't bring a message for our own agenda and for our own numbers, but we bring a message of peace. And we come in the peace of God and we pray that the peace of God would rest on them, in particular rest on those who have been abused by such. And I love what he also says here, that this disciple is worth their wages, meaning this work of peace is satisfying. Have you ever considered that, that this work of following Jesus in this way is satisfying? We are sent with peace. But not only are we sent with peace, but we are sent with good news. You you can already assume what this one is. Verse 9, it says, We heal the sick and we say to them, The kingdom of God is near you. 
This is what the disciples earlier in uh, Luke 9 did. They proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. They were given the authority, the power to, to heal. and was very specific for these guys, yes, but we also have the same call. We have the same power to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. Our message is no different. The Spirit of God has empowered us to proclaim the good news of God. And we proclaim who? We proclaim what? We proclaim a king. A king that has come. A king that has come and he has taken upon himself the penalty of our sin, upon himself on the cross, and he has brought reconciliation between us and God, and then he has brought us by his grace into his family. Brothers and sisters, we do not determine the message. We deliver what Christ has said and what Christ has done. In Luke's teaching, the kingdom of God is something and always something at what God has done, not what we have done. It's not something that we do. And the kingdom of God is something that fulfills what God has promised in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God is not what the people of Israel were expecting, but it's the good news that is being proclaimed that through the Messiah, God's kingdom and the promises that he made in the Old Testament to his people are now being realized in their very presence through the person of Christ. And so our response to the kingdom of God and what we proclaim is not just the good news, but then we we. Respond. We ask for a response. And that response is trusting in God. Repenting and placing our faith in the good news that the Messiah has come. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God through Jesus Christ in his people's hearts and lives. And then it's manifested through those who follow him and his teaching. Have you considered how good of a message that we proclaim? Next point. I told you we were going to move right through. Next point. I don't always sense with good news, but we were sent in peace. I said the last one, the third point, was we were sent with peace. This time we are sent in peace. Now, when you look at these next verses, and we're going to finish it out, 10 through 16, it doesn't seem so peaceful, does it? In fact, what it seems like, it seems like a very horrific experience that Jesus is saying. Verse 10 and 11 show us once again that although we might meet people of peace, and we pray that we will meet those people of peace, there is a reality that we all know of that we will be rejected, that we will not be received, as it says. And no matter how much good news we have, no matter how much, how much peace we come to bring, or humility that we, we, we come with, or even how much prayer we do, there's the reception of the gospel is only by the work of the Spirit. It's only done by the work of the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is not moving and working in someone's life, then there will be rejection. Once again, we see in the passage here, verse 11, that it's okay for us to warn 
and move on. You see the warning there, the, 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 the shaking of the dust off their feet. We, we talked about that last time in Luke chapter 9. There's a little bit more exp, uh, explanation of that if you want to go back and listen to that. But the reality of when we preach the gospel, we will be rejected. But look at the terrible consequences that comes to those who reject the gospel. Jesus was a pronouncing these woes. You see that there? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He was pronouncing these woes on these cities. These are, these are cities that he just went to. In particular, Bethsaida. We, we know that one. We, we read about that one. And, and Jesus did some amazing works there. Some of the, his greatest of works, miracles that he has ever done in his ministry, he did there. I mean, in crazy amounts of people. The amount of miracles that he did there. And Jesus is pronouncing woe that despite seeing such great miracles in their midst, they still rejected him. You see, they were more in love with what Jesus could do for them than what Jesus was going to do to rescue them from. He says it would be, more, it would be far worse for them than even Sodom. You know, you ever, you ever um, we use that saying, right? man, that place is sinful as Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You say things like that. Man, why don't we ever say Bethsaida and Chorazin? Right? Importantly to Jesus that they were more wicked. And what were they more wicked in? Their rejection of Christ. Their, their rejection of, of, of the Savior. And, and even some of those, they, were, they, they loved seeing Jesus do his miracles. They, went, they were the big crowds, remember that? But they were rejecting Jesus. Because it wasn't about repenting of their sins and having faith in the Son of God. It was about being entertained. It was about getting from Jesus. And this warning that we see from Jesus that no matter what our world says is hate speech, Brothers and sisters, there is nothing more loving than we can do in this world, nothing more merciful in this world than we can in warning someone who is destined to an eternal hell. But that requires boldness and love, doesn't it? It's easy for me, as a parent, when I see one of my children wanting to run into the road when a car's coming, for me to scream stop and yell and do whatever it takes to get them to stop and then whoop their butts when they get out of there saying don't you ever do that again is that is that hateful of me to do so am I hating them for, for judging them because they're wanting to run into an oncoming car no that's loving brothers and sisters we become humbly Remember, all of these things, we come praying, we come with peace, we come humbly, because we have an urgent gospel, good news message to proclaim. And the part of that message is that there is a warning of judgment is near. Because the kingdom of God is near. But we are sent in peace. Although we know God is coming back, we know His judgment will be brought down, we know that God is sovereign. 
We know that he is the Lord of the harvest, brothers and sisters. And as gut-wrenching and as hard as it is to see so many reject the mercy and grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we can rest and have peace in the goodness of God. That he is sovereign and that he will always do what's right and he will always do what's good. But we must go. But we must proclaim. We are the voice of God in our city. Do you see that in verse 16? If they hear you, who else are they hearing? They're hearing Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if they hear us, then they are hearing Jesus. And if they're rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. We don't need to take it personally. They're rejecting Christ. So we can rest in the peace of God. We can be sent in peace that God is sovereign over making disciples. But brothers, just sisters, just because God is sovereign, that does not make us complacent in going. You know, I love preaching sermons like this from passages like this because it dispels the caricature that is made to those who hold a Reformed theology. Just because we believe that God is sovereign, that does not stop us from proclaiming the gospel. It gives us peace when we are rejected. We can trust God. He's sovereign. He's Lord of the harvest. My outcome in that is not worry. Yes, I pray and I plead to God. trust. I can do so in a way that doesn't give me anxiety and fear, but gives me trust because God's self-determination over salvation is sure. And so when I'm going out, and when you're going out, and you're reaching out, and you're proclaiming the gospel, you can remember that. That if that person you are sharing the gospel with, if God is wooing them and working on them and maybe even a person of peace, and if they are of God's elect, you can be assured that God is going to save them. What rest does that give us? What trust does that give us? Praise God for that. Now, since the beginning of our church, when we started this, the planting of this little seed of this church, and now it's starting to grow and mature, my prayer has always been that we each would grow in love and affection for Jesus Christ. We would grow up together in our love and affection of Christ, and we would mature. So every sermon that is preached, every song that we sing, every ordinance that we take part of, Lord's Supper, baptism, every fellowship that we have, every response time that we do, and every question we put on the screen, every group study we do on Wednesday night, and so forth, is all about and all aimed toward your edification to treasure Christ more and more as a disciple. That's been the point of everything. And it's going to continue to be a part of that. But, but not just to become a disciple for ourselves but to become a disciple-making disciple. A disciple-making disciple in our homes, where we work, in our neighborhoods, in our clubs, in our teams, in other circles of influence that we may have, that we would be people of peace, proclaiming the gospel of peace. So 
So let me wrap it up by asking four quick questions. First, do you understand the gospel well enough to share it clearly and concisely? That should be obvious from this, from this uh, passage here. Do you understand the gospel enough to share it clearly and concisely? That's one of our, our first questions that we ask in our, our elder interview with, uh, with a petitioning church member. We ask them to explain the gospel. And that reason is because we want them to we want the understand and know that they understand the gospel and that what they said that they believe is right and things are jiving together. But do you know it well enough to explain it to someone else? Do you know where to turn to in the New Testament where it's very short, concise uh, 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 descriptions of what the gospel is? John 3.16, Romans 5.8. Are you able to uh, articulate it and share it? it that's, that's not just my job. Right? That, that's not my job to, 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 to be the only one, or us and the elders are the only ones to, to be able to uh, share the gospel. But it is our job to equip you to be able to share the gospel, to be disciple-making disciples. Our job is to equip you to do those things. So if you feel unsure, let me recommend a book. What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert or the Bible? What is the Gospel? This is great. This is in the back. That's why we have those things, so that we understand. They're free. Also, you can go to our website. We have a little link there that says, what is the gospel? And we have a little short explanation for what we believe about the gospel. Memorize that. So you know how to share that in a conversation with someone that you're building a relationship with. And that brings us to our second question. Do you share the gospel? So the first one is, can you articulate it? And the second one is, are you sharing it? So are you praying for opportunities to share with those you know? Those that you have an influence over, are you praying to meet people wherever you go to be able to build relationships with them? So think of the places that you go on any given week. Think of the places that that you encounter different people. Maybe it's a place that you go three, four times a week. Like somewhere you, you go get coffee or a favorite place that you go to, you know, you get your gas or a favorite breakfast place or whatever it is. Think of someone there that you see every week that you can start building a relationship with. And even in those few moments, you can interject things about the gospel and what you believe. And that might lead to a future, longer conversation, why we can trust God. And if that person is a person of peace, that that relationship is going to continue. Do you pray for those opportunities? Are you discerning over those opportunities? Let's not be fearful of our of our rejection. Let's trust in the Lord. We're going to be, we're going to find mixed responses, but the response isn't our task. We're not looking for a successful response. We're looking for faithfulness and obedience to proclaim and share the gospel. We trust God with the response. He's the Lord of the harvest. Third question. Does your life give evidence of the gospel you are called to proclaim? Does your life give evidence of the gospel you are called to proclaim? Is there objective evidence in, of the kingdom of God in your life? I think this is one of the great indictments, at least of my age and my generation, since I've been alive, it's probably always been that way, but at least things that I've heard, that, the, that churches are filled with people who say they believe in Jesus, yet there's very little objective evidence of any gospel transformation. So when you proclaim the gospel, will your life give evidence of what you're proclaiming? 
And I'm not saying is your life perfect. I'm not saying is your life nothing but strength. But what's even more impressive than your own strength is humble holiness. Not a holiness that you achieve by your own self-righteousness, but a holiness that looks like Christ's. A holiness that boasts in His grace. Is there evidence? Does your life give evidence of such things? This is such an important question, isn't it? And a good question to ask ourselves. Last question, and we'll be done. Do you believe in the urgency and the consequences to sharing the gospel? Do you believe that there is an urgency and there will be consequences? We're not fanatics that are completely fearful and act in fear. We trust in the sovereignty of God over all salvation, and that encourages us and that emboldens us to our gospel work. But brothers and sisters, do you believe that real, holy, righteous judgment is coming for our world, for our country, in our city? And do you believe that those consequences are eternal? And if so, can you feel the weight of that? That brings a sense of urgency to, those, to that reality to share the gospel and to be intentional and missional to take seriously the obedience that we have been called to be to, to go. This sermon has been pretty straightforward, I believe. Are you a disciple-making disciple? Are you replicating what God has done through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? It's to be, our, to be encouraged, I hope. To be exhorted, to be corrected. I know. Maybe not the message you wanted to hear on Mother's Day. <laughs> I just couldn't find my mom in that passage, right? I couldn't find how to say it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a delight it is to even think once again and to remember and to feel the grace that has been placed upon my life. I am completely undeserved to have been called, to be set apart, to have been saved, and yet by your grace, you have done so. You have given me the faith to believe and the power to continue to follow as you have done for each and every one of us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we learn to engage and to overcome these fears that we may have and these walls that we've maybe built up, even in our relationships with lost people that we know, Lord, that you would encourage us by your Holy Spirit that as disciples we would be obedient to the call to go as we've been sent out to proclaim the gospel, faithfully praying for laborers in our world, in our nation, in our city, and praying for one another. Lord, even this week, even this day, send people 
in our lives where it is obvious for us to build relationships with them and to share the gospel with them. And, oh, Lord, let us evermore and always trust in you because you are the Lord of the harvest. Let us work hard and be faithful, God. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.